Alexander Wales. And this is episode 10, Antagonist Part 2. If you want a really good antagonist, you need to you need to balance them against the protagonist mm-hmm. in some way. You can't just like bring a random antagonist and protagonist together. Right. I've seen movies and I've read books where that happens, and it it's usually not any good because it's just hey, I thought of this thing that this guy can this is his worldview and this is why he's evil and this other guy is going to, you know, stop him because it's like his job or whatever. That's not right. a good way to do it. So Batman and Superman. I think Batman has, and I'm a little hesitant to say this, but uh, Batman has the best rogues gallery in comic books. Oh, I'll agree with that, yeah. And I think Superman has not necessarily the worst because there's a lot of comic books out there, and I'm sure some are just terrible, but Superman has bad villains. Um, he's got... You know, he's got Lex Luthor. That Lex Luthor is great. Love Lex Luthor. But Superman's villains don't stand in opposition to him. They're, for the most part, they're just powerful guys who... Their opposition to Superman is sort of hackneyed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, like, Atomic Skull. There's Metallo. There's Doomsday. It's, they tend it's, to be what you said. Like, it's just a bad guy shows up, and Superman has to stop them. Yeah, and I thought I thought Doomsday, who killed Superman for a while, I thought that he had a really sort of neat backstory, which is that they He's just trying to become are, the strongest in the universe, right? Uh yeah, it's kind of it's kind of that, but his like background is that these scientists and I use the term loosely, uh <laughs> like shot this like baby out into the wilds, and then the baby would die and they would like scoop up the baby and they would make a new baby out of it. Um, and like science. how, yeah, that's, that's science. But how, how this, I, I don't think it was all that much more complicated than that, but eventually the baby grew stronger and stronger as you would expect. Oh, 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 like the villain from worm. Uh, what was the, one of the slaughterhouse? Yeah. 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 Okay. So every time, so they would basically just make him immune to what he was, what he would kill them before. Kind of. It was really hand-wavy. Right, right. It's just sort of like Doomsday's introductory like issue, and they, they spent like... I always know. wondered why they didn't just throw him into the sun. Right. But but they were like, you know, they shoot this baby into this place with wolves or something, and they, and they, they slowly make this like perfect killing machine or right, whatever. Right. And then he goes and fights Superman. And other than the fact that Superman died during that battle, and in the uh, Justice League... Um, version of it, he gets to Superman gets to this great world of cardboard speech, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah, I've been yeah. holding back my whole life, and I mean that's clearly not true if you're like paying attention to what Superman has been doing prior to that. But um, it was a great speech, yeah, because it's like oh, the world is like card, you know. It gave some depth to him. It gave him a, a sense of real like you get you got to feel for a moment some of the anguish that comes with being the strongest man in the world. Yeah, but but the problem was. None of that related to Doomsday. Right. Which makes Doomsday not a great, you know, antagonist. Uh, he has a 
whatever backstory, but he comes to fight Superman, and the Superman's reaction to him would have been the same for any right. sufficiently powerful threat. Right. So how would you fix that, like we did before a little bit with previous villains? Like, what do you think would, would make Doomsday better fit for Superman? Okay, so the problem is that Superman's... It's like you said, the Superman's challenges should be... They should be moral, they should be intellectual, they should be, you know, legal. Yeah, legal is another good one. Yeah, I mean, that's a subset of intellectual. Right, social, yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's not really a great way to fix Doomsday. I think that if you take, you could take, you, you could take Doomsday in, like, an intellectual direction. Not that he himself is an intellectual, but he that mm-hmm. he gets, you know, sort of captured by intellectuals. In, in the sense of he allies himself with them and does a, a bunch of the transformative things that Superman doesn't and begins to transform the world through force, but not used as violence. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that would make him... So now you've got to... Superman has to stop him for reasons that are not simply he's going around blowing up buildings. Right, anyone could do. that. That's not, like, super in character for Doomsday, but the yeah, problem with yeah. Doomsday is that he didn't have... His motivation was basically to, like, take on the biggest threat or whatever. And that's never been Superman's, mm-hmm. you know, like, driving character trait. Is yeah. that, He's like, not Goku. Right. Who's just constantly giddy at the thought of fighting a foe greater than himself so he can make himself stronger. Doomsday would make a great foe for Goku from Dragon Ball Z, but not for Superman. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of Superman's villains have that problem is mm. that they don't challenge Superman on anything except for, you know, how hard can you punch? You know, it'd be great. What if Doomsday was like, so if, if, if someone made a immortal being by essentially putting him through torture and hell on earth, just or hell on whatever planet he's on constantly. And finally they make this like super powerful being that is unstoppable and all powerful. And like, if he wants to die, like, could he kill himself? Like maybe he can't. So what do you do if you if you want to die but you're so powerful that you can't kill yourself? Well, you go around looking for. Presumably, he tried shooting himself into the sun at one point too. <laughs> yeah, you go looking around and you find Superman and you be like, "Hey, kill me!" And Superman's like, uh, "No, I don't like killing people." And he's like, "Well, if you don't kill me, I'm going to start wrecking Metropolis." It gives you a very weird fight. Yeah, but probably one that has more depth and one that reveals more depth from Superman. Right, it brings a, it brings a moral struggle to him. Yeah. I've always, you know, Superman just, he, he has like, you know, conduit is made of electricity or whatever. And there, there are people who have interesting powers that, that are Superman's villains, but they don't, they don't connect on any level except the level of spectacle. Right. You know, which is why Superman's primary villain is Lex Luthor and why, why Lex is the most interesting it, and Batman. Batman is a sometimes antagonist to Superman. Yeah. Especially in, like, Dark Knight Returns. And I think that's an interesting contrast between the two of them for, for many of the same reasons. And then Superman also, he occasionally, uh, like in Kingdom Come, there are um, sort of these anti-heroes um, who are antagonists to Superman. Because mm-hmm. that's, like, a legal, moral type thing. They're, you know, they're superheroes who are, like, killing people. Superman can't, like, handle that. And he wants to stop them, but, you know, how how do you do that? They have the law on their side, presumably? It sort of varies. Uh, I think it might have been in Kingdom Come, but there was one story where a bunch of these, you know, Superman, they don't have the law on their side, 
uh, and so Superman's responsible for like locking them up. Mm-hmm. And these superheroes are basically put into like indefinite incarceration, which is not all that much better. Yeah. Than like killing them, right? They're just like cut off from society completely and stuck in a cell because they just can't be let out. But that's still that's still an interesting yeah sort of conundrum that paints Superman as more morally gray, which isn't you know necessarily what you want to do with Superman, but it, it adds more depth to him. Which is what a good protagonist and antagonist relationship should do. Yeah, which is why Batman has the best rogues gallery because not all of them. You have some like. Uh, Killer Croc, who's just, he's, he has an interesting backstory of his own, but it doesn't... There, there are things you could do with a lot of Batman villains to make them more interesting towards Batman specifically. And, well, Batman is also a very flawed protagonist. Right, and usually. that's... The, I've seen it, it said many times that a lot of Batman's villains represent some aspect of a broken mind, um, some yeah. psychological, like thing taken to an extreme and obviously we have to talk about the joker briefly in terms of at least briefly in terms of an antagonist that is pretty much has no redeeming qualities i think there was an amusing comic panel i saw once where he was angrily denouncing something for someone for being either anti-american or racist or something he was like i'm a psychopath but i'm not a racist psychopath oh yeah but yeah. things like things like that like you know they're amusing but in in actuality really the joker is pure chaos from the movie perspective for sure and has no redeeming qualities but he still makes a great villain even if he's not empathetic because he does such a good job of reflecting off of the protagonist and pushing the protagonist outside of of what they want to be putting them to testing them to their limits yeah and i think one of the things that people really like about the joker uh, is that and one of the things they like about batman is that the joker has this like anti-establishment streak and so does batman yeah yeah, and so does Batman, and they're both sort of, you know, it's a reflection of Batman's vigilantism. Um, but the Joker, you know, a lot of people like the Joker because he, you know, when he's picking on uh, targets, I wouldn't say acceptable targets, but um, targets that are more acceptable than not. Like gangsters. Yeah, like, like you know, Joker killing gangsters or... Um, that's how the Dark Knight starts. Is he's like killing these other robbers, and so you're like, yeah, he's just he's like executing this plan and wild like, card, maybe. Yeah, he's a wild card. Um, a lot of people like that when he like, you know, takes down people who, and he's not doing it like the Punisher, right? Right. No, he's just doing it because the obstacles in his short-term goals. If Joker has long-term goals, I've never seen them really expressed. He just seems to want to push at any boundary that he sees. Yeah. I think that uh, a lot of the DC villains, especially Batman villains, have benefited a lot from the sort of heavy iteration that DC does because you get, like, the best Joker then. Yeah. Unless you're, like, going off and doing your own thing with it, but which a lot of writers do, but... When when you think of Joker, you're thinking of the best Joker, yeah. not the worst Joker. Absolutely, know. yeah. Which is, I think, uh, the Joker from the Batman cartoon, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, then, then there's, like, the Adam West... Oh, oh, yeah, Batman okay, yeah. Sort of. <laughs> Although, there's been, in, like... There's been sort of an attempt in, like, the Arkham games to redeem some of those, like, 
not very interesting villains. Mm-hmm. Just like give them like a deeper backstory. Like Calendar Man <laughs> bases all of his crimes around like the calendar, and like he's a disturbed individual. That's all, all of Batman's villains for the most part are disturbed individuals. Yeah. There's such a focus on like the Arkham Asylum. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of weird. There's like King Tut uh, was an Egyptian themed villain from the um, from the TV show, which is not. No one's ever tried to make him like dark and gritty or a complex character or anything like right, that. Right, right. Ooh, you know who my favorite villain for Batman actually is? Like Joker's high up there, but I would say Ra's al Ghul. Not the one from the movies whose motivations were never really quite clear to me. Um, the Ra's al Ghul, the immortal. Did you ever watch the uh, animated series? Batman yeah. the animated series? Yeah, yeah. I always felt like there was so much potential there for what he could do and, and what he represented. And the relationship he had with Batman and, and his daughter had with Batman and everything was really well done. But, like, if you've got a, a character who's like, I want to end death, and Batman's whole background was, my parents died and that's tragic and no one's parents should ever have to die. That's a great relationship to start a contentious point from. Because yeah. if the other person's way of going about that is not great, then instant conflict. Yeah. And I think you, you want your antagonist to compare and contrast with your protagonist mm. and Batman's villains do generally a very good job of that. So, like, Mr. Freeze. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he was a he started out as a joke villain, um, but then in the animated series, they gave him this sort of backstory where his wife was ill, and he's, like, this master of cryogenics, and he, like, freezes her, and then there's this terrible accident, and his motivations are all about his, like, sort of dead wife. Yeah. And that relates to, like, Batman's obsession with his dead parents. Mm-hmm. And it that's such a good... First of all, Mr. Freeze, you know, goes from, like, this joke... He, he was basically Captain Cold before. Yeah, yeah. From The the Flash. Um, very similar character before that. But then he's, like, A, given this sympathetic backstory where you sort of, like, are like, okay, you know, he's robbing this bank because he needs the money to fund his research. Mm-hmm. And, like, everything that he does is sort of based around his wife. But then you can have a moment where Mr. Freeze is like, you don't understand what it's like to lose someone you love. And then Batman is like, Oh, but I do. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, That voice. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think, you know, that works really well. If you can, you have your antagonist and protagonist sort of the not so different moment is sort of cliched, but I think it is cliched because it works really well. Yeah. And cliche is a matter of execution sometimes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, this is also one of the things that makes fiction so compelling. Because in real life, that's exactly how it is. What we said earlier about how villains that just don't match their protagonists. For, the, for one thing, antagonists don't necessarily exist. You have, you have to take a point of view in reality in order to have an antagonist exist. From a human perspective, I guess, until we, we get to the potential life-threatening situations for all humanity. You know, some historically agreed-upon figures like... Hitler and Pol Pot, there's a, a tendency to think of them in the respect of, well, they were clearly evil people because they were. Like, from all values that 99% of people would express, regardless of how they actually feel, yeah, people would express agreement that people like Hitler uh, tend to be terrible people. And that number is actually too high that I think about some distressing subsects of the population. Anyway, the point is, yeah. just put it on a smaller scale then. Cops and robbers... Murderers and, and investigators. There's no writer creating a serial killer and the perfect 
cop that's trying to hunt the serial killer and has their personality traits complementing each other and working off each other and like ideologies that are clashing and like it can happen like it's you know when you throw enough random chance at the history of the human race like it happens sometimes you know there can be great generals on on both sides of a war that have a personal relationship with each other or a a compelling interwoven conflict with each other but generally speaking it's just Someone on one side of a conflict wants to do something, something on the other side of a conflict wants to stop them, or a person wants to react to the negative thing that someone else is doing, and you don't have that carefully written relationship. And that's what you can bring to fiction that makes it so unique. Yeah. And it's actually, there's a, at the time that we're recording this, there's a, we're gearing up for a um, presidential election. And I always follow the elections very closely, but there's always in the media an attempt to frame this opposition as a narrative. Yeah. Which I find really interesting because it's not, you know, this is my fourth or like fifth election that I've been like able to vote in. And I think that like these are just two people, right? Right. <laughs> they're not they're not actually like protagonist and antagonist, but if you delve deep enough you can find these like narrative differences in their life story and then if you want to sell newspapers or like ad space on your TV, you can you can frame it in such a way that that it looks like they're that you're getting some deep revelation into each character that's been built up. Right. Yeah. That's the thing of framing history. You know, like Winston Churchill and, and Hitler, or um, if you if you're taking like the two sides of the American Civil War and and what they were fighting for and that kind of thing, like you can make narratives out of reality, but what you want to do as a, as a writer is create a story that is compelling on every possible front. And that means you, you have the control to make it compelling on every possible front instead of like selectively editing perception or, or the facts. Yeah. And you, you know, I'm not going to say that you shouldn't do stories where you just have two people with misaligned goals, but then there's not a narrative connection between the two of them. But I think it's much more compelling if you can take this sort of um, last time we talked about man versus man stories mm -hmm. and you can take one of those and you can use it to reveal a man versus self. You can, you can make it revelatory, which yeah, that, that's one of the things that, that I love about fiction. It's one of the things that I find difficult about characterization um, sort of like, because you, you need to know your, both of your characters really well. Mm -hmm. And then if you have, more characters added like if you uh glenn morden has a cast of um four and you need to know all those characters and then you need to know all of the antagonists or sort of not direct antagonists but sort of opposing side characters mm -hmm. obstacles you, yeah you need to know your characters really well if you if you want to reveal things about them through indirect means because that's one of the writing 101 things is you you do your show and not your tell right you, you don't tell me that someone is a coward you show me that someone's a coward rational fiction tends to sort of avoid that rule a little bit which is one of the things i like about it because you know if you want to get in depth on ideology you you can't just do that through showing right you can't you can reveal preferences but you have to show it to be compelling as a story, but you can expand on it through dialogue. Yeah, but I mean, like like Metropolitan Man. Mm -hmm. There's a limit to 
how much that you can say about Superman being an existential threat if you're being entirely indirect about it. Right, right. So at some point you have to come out and state it. Yeah, we'll talk about exposition at some later point, but I, you can do that in ways that are less clunky than just dumping like five paragraphs right. about, about means and ends and personal biases and stuff like that. The Prestige is a movie that is probably, I want to say it's my favorite movie of all time, but I might just be thinking that now and, and further reflection will change my mind. But it's definitely one of the movie, few movies that I actually own, and it's one of the movies that when I watch it over and over again, there's always something new to appreciate about it. I'm not going to spoil anything, because going in knowing as little as possible is probably the best way to experience it. But the prestige is about two magicians in the in the classical sense, stage magicians that are trying to one-up each other for a variety of reasons that are explained early on in the movie. And they're really compelling characters, wonderfully acted and written. The writing is just top-notch throughout the movie. And there is no real protagonist and antagonist in this movie. There is two sides that you're going to you're going to feel sympathetic to one first then the other then maybe both then maybe neither like it's it's a lot of of great interplay between these two characters and they are they are two sides of a coin that start as friends because they're so similar and diverge because of a tragedy but that divergence is accentuated by how different their philosophies are on the thing that they both love and it's a great reflection. Like, while they're battling each other, they're also reflecting upon themselves and their own views and ideals about what they care about and what makes them do what they do. And it's just a fantastic culmination when you when they finally have their 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 final conversation in the in the movie, because it does such a good job of showing that a good antagonist grows a protagonist, a good protagonist can change an antagonist, even if it doesn't necessarily make them no longer an antagonist. And if you have no clear line between what's the protagonist and an antagonist, then you can do so many great things with the characters that you can't with a, with a necess- like you can't always do with a, with a very clear good guy and bad guy. Yeah. And, and that's sort of my preferred way of writing is that I would, I would like to have uh, a viewpoint chapter maybe every once in a while from Mm. from the antagonist just to like more firmly get inside their head uh it's one of the things that i think uh worm does really really well yeah i mean worm does characterization well in general but um sort of explaining why the antagonists are antagonists and and you can't you know that's one of the things that i think star wars uh did poorly because (laughs) you have this prequel trilogy that's sort of trying to detail the fall of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Um, and it's just not compelling. It's not compelling. It's not a, it's not a well-crafted story. There, there were ways that you could fix it. I think there are are many ways that it could be fixed. I don't know if it can be fixed enough to make me prefer for it to exist in the first place. Like, I don't know if I'll ever get to the point where I'm like, okay, this was such a good, prologue for the Darth Vader story that I'm, I'm glad that I have that knowledge as opposed to keeping him the mysterious villain that he was originally, but it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So multiple antagonists. If a antagonist, 
I mean, the antagonist is there to generate conflict, right? But yeah. uh, they're also there to reveal and grow the protagonist. So if you use multiple antagonists, I think it's best to target them at, at different parts of your protagonist, different like aspects of their psyche, as Batman villains tend to do. They're all about different sides of who Batman is. I thought I've been watching anime lately. I've been watching this one called Shokugeki, where it's like everything is based on food. And so everyone has their specialty within food. It's like, oh, his specialty is like spices and his specialty is smoking meats and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so when they, they do these battles between each other and every, every battle is sort of around a different thing. And it's not a way of exploring the protagonist because the protagonist is a very uh, simple and not very complex character, but it's a way of exploring the theme, which is food. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you're going to do if you're going to do multiple antagonists, you you need to not just come at the protagonist from different directions, but come at your like sort of core theme. Yeah. If your theme is politics and you have like two political opponents, you as soon as you bring in like a third party candidate or whatever, you want them to inject a different a different like attack. Yeah, there's a lot of great science fiction and fantasy stories that'll follow a trend where. There's two warring civilizations that are mostly similar, or rather very different on, on first glance. And then a third threat approaches, which is so alien from both of them that they either unite against it or they just face it from their own opposite sides. And, and in some stories, they, you know, more or less become friends or no longer enemies by the end of it. And some cases the story continues with them still antagonists but they had to unite against it because it was threatening both of them which is you know very serviceable as an overarching plot but what can work really well with this idea is when you introduce a antagonist that is beyond the 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 moment kind of like like if you've got if you've got the the situation of a antagonist that is threatening the main character's safety an antagonist that is threatening this, the main character's values. Like, those are two very different conflicts that they can engage in. And, like we were talking about earlier with stories that don't necessarily have an antagonist, like a meteor coming to the Earth story, uh, you can still have an antagonist there who's simply a uh, a failure mode of thinking or a civilizational failure mode of, of reacting to that threat, which can, yeah. which can challenge the perceptions of, you know, unity and and coming together or, or working towards towards ideas in, in a intelligent way, or even recalibrating what's an acceptable risk or threat for people to take to save the world. Like if the, if one person's idea is, look, we're, we're not going to stop the meteor. We need to make these arc ships and, and just save who we can. Like that's not necessarily wrong. Like, maybe that's the right approach to take. But if your protagonist is someone who's like, no, we have to save everyone, that person can be an antagonist, too, uh, because they're diverting resources towards saving 1% of the planet, opposed to try to use all the resources to save all the planet. Yeah. I think the big thing that you need to be aware of is that if you have, you know, the problem with having multiple antagonists is basically the same problem that you have with having multiple conflicts within a story, Mm -hmm. which is that you need to you need to be aware of how you're resolving those conflicts. If you have multiple conflicts, it's it's kind of easy to have one conflict sort of overshadow the others. Yeah. Um, and it's also easy to sort of have the solutions be a little too clean, especially if like 
one conflict is interpersonal and the other is like they're terrorists, right? Right. It's basically the diehard model. There's like John McClane has this wife and his marriage is on the rocks and then these terrorists come in. You don't want them to beat the terrorists and, and have their marriage life suddenly work out because they beat the terrorists. Yeah. And then obviously in Die Hard that it doesn't actually work. Right? They're they're married they, they end <laughs> marriage is all fixed and then Die Hard too. Well you need to have sequels, so obviously. Yeah. You need to keep keep things rocky. But yeah, no, that's a good point. The, the different antagonists should not just have different goals and methods, or you know, goals or methods, depending on if you want them to be similar. But multiple antagonists should have different ways of solving the conflict that they represent. Yeah. Uh, next time we'll be talking about story structure and uh, how to organize a story around a central theme, uh, along with some other bits and pieces. So we will see you later. Yeah, thanks for listening. Join us next time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Rationally Writing, and thanks to our patrons who've helped us choose the best hosting options to let everyone download and listen to the episodes. Now that our audience has grown a bit, we want to create new opportunities to support the show through mutual value. That's right, this is an advertisement. Specifically, it's an advertisement for Audible. On the off chance that you haven't heard of them a million times already in other podcasts, Audible is a website and app that lets you download thousands of audiobooks of all kinds, fiction or non-fiction. Audible is offering a 30-day trial with one credit for a free book of your choice by signing up and using our promotion code, RATIONAL. That way, you get a free book and you can help support the show and our other creative endeavors. Listening to audiobooks is one of my favorite ways to keep my ears and mind engaged when driving or playing Hearthstone. If you've never listened to an audiobook before or you're just looking for a new title to listen to, allow me to make a recommendation. The Dresden Files is one of my favorite book series, and if you haven't read it, I strongly recommend using that free credit for Stormfront, the first book in the series. The Dresden Files is an urban fantasy series about a wizard working as a private detective in Chicago, and fun as that may sound, ending a summary of the series there is really doing a disservice to what an amazing story it is. The first couple books are a bit rough around the edges, and the secondary characters start out one-dimensional. Before long, the story really shines with compelling plots, great action scenes, and a fun exploration of a complex, mostly rational magic system. Best of all, though, The Dresden Files is one of the most powerfully emotional narratives I've ever read. Harry Dresden is a man who's trying his best to save his corner of the world from monsters, human and non-human, that are often beyond him, and seeing him and others deal with the consequences of that is one of the most fascinating parts of the series. What makes Harry such a great protagonist is that, besides being a genuinely funny, genre-savvy wise-ass, he can only rarely solve his problems by brute magical force, and often has to outthink his opponents. Speaking of opponents, since today's episode was on antagonists, the depth and breadth of the antagonists in the Dresden Files is truly amazing. Every book deals with one or two major antagonist groups, whether they're one of the vampire courts, the fey folk, demons, necromancers, or whatever, and each one is unique and compelling in their own way. What's more, the way Harry grows after dealing with each of them, both as a practitioner and as a person, is truly one of the most amazing character arcs in any story I've ever read, and I'm constantly amazed at how Jim Butcher can keep things so compelling for so long, when so many other books or television series eventually start repeating themselves or run off the rails. I can talk about this series for hours, so I'll just stop there. The Dresden Files is one of those books I recommend to all my friends who have even the slightest interest in fantasy, and now I'm recommending it to all of you. And as a bonus, for all you Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans, if you decide to try the audiobooks, they're read by James Marsters, who played Spike, and he does a fantastic job in it. If that doesn't sound like the kind of story you'd enjoy, then you can find plenty more on Audible. Get your free book and support the show at www.audibletrial.com forward slash rational. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.